Brothers and sisters, this has been an inspirational two days, and I hope that my remarks will also add to the instruction and the spirit of this general conference. Occasionally, I have the privilege of officiating in the temple when two worthy young people are married and sealed in the house of the Lord. These are always special times for family and friends. The feeling at such times is a sweet and satisfying mix of earthly happiness and eternal joy, seen in the tear-filled eyes of mothers who have prayed for this day with all of their hearts. You see it in the eyes of fathers who, for the first time in months, are thinking about something besides how to pay for all of the expenses. But mostly you see it in the eyes of a virtuous bride and groom who have lived true to the teachings of the gospel, shunning the temptations of the world. There is a special, undeniable feeling available to those who have remained clean and pure and chaste. Too many of our young men and women are succumbing to the pressures imposed by a world saturated with evil messages and immoral behavior. Lucifer is waging a vicious war for the souls of young and old alike, and the casualty count is climbing. The standards of the world have shifted like the sands of the wind-blown desert. That which was once unheard of or unacceptable is now commonplace. The world's perspective has been so dramatically altered that those who choose to adhere to traditional standards of morality are viewed as strange, almost as though they must justify their desire to keep the commandments of God. But one thing is certain. The commandments have not changed. Let there be no mistake about that. Right is still right. Wrong is still wrong. No matter how cleverly cloaked in respectability or political correctness, we believe in chastity before marriage and fidelity ever after. That standard is an absolute standard of truth. It is neither subject to public opinion polls nor dependent upon situation or circumstance. There is no need to debate it or other gospel standards. But there is a desperate need for parents, leaders, and teachers to help our youth, youth learn to understand, love, value, and live the standards of the gospel. Parents and youth must stand together in defense against a clever and devious adversary. We must be just as dedicated, effective, and determined in our efforts to live the gospel as he is in his efforts to destroy it and us. The challenge before us is great. At risk are the immortal souls of those we love. May I suggest four ways we can build a fortress of faith in our homes and particularly help prepare our youth to be clean and chaste and pure, completely worthy to enter the temple. The first is gospel information. The most important life-changing information that I know of is the knowledge that we are truly children of God, our Eternal Father. 
This is not only doctrinally correct, it is spiritually vital. Said the Savior in His powerful intercessory prayer, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. To know Heavenly Father and to understand our relationship to Him as our Father and our God is to find meaning in this life and hope in the life to come. Our families need to know He is real, that we are in fact His sons and His daughters, and heirs to all that He has now and forever. Secure in that knowledge, family members will be less likely to look for devilish diversions and more likely to look to God and live. Somehow we need to instill in our hearts the powerful testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, like unto that of our pioneer forefathers. Remember when Nauvoo fell in September of 1846 and the unbearable conditions of the saints in the poor camps? When word reached winter quarters, Brigham Young immediately called the brethren together. After explaining the situation and reminding them of the covenant made in the Nauvoo Temple that no one who wanted to come, no matter how poor, would be left behind. He gave them this remarkable challenge. Now is the time for labor, he said. Let the fire of the covenant, which you made in the house of the Lord, burn in your hearts like flame unquenchable. Within a few days, in spite of near-destitute conditions at winter quarters, many wagons were rolling eastward to rescue the saints in the poor camps along the Mississippi River. We often hear of the suffering and the sacrifice those early saints endured, and we ask ourselves, how did they do it? What was it that gave them such strength? Part of the answer lies in President Young's powerful words. Those early Latter-day Saints had made covenants with God, and those covenants burned like unquenchable fire in their hearts. Sometimes we're tempted to let our lives be governed more by convenience than by covenant. It is always convenient. It is not always convenient to live gospel standards and stand up for truth and testify of the restoration. It usually is not convenient to share the gospel with others. It isn't always convenient to respond to a calling in the Church, especially one that stretches our abilities. Opportunities to serve others in meaningful ways, as we have covenanted to do, rarely come at convenient times. But there is no spiritual power in living by convenience. The power comes as we keep our covenants. As we look at the lives of these early saints, we see that their covenants were the primary force in their lives. Their example and testimony were powerful enough to influence generation after generation of their children. 
As our children grow, they need information taught by parents more directly and plainly about what is and is not appropriate. Parents need to teach children to avoid any pornographic photographs or stories. Children and youth need to know from parents that pornography of any kind is a tool of the devil, and if anyone flirts with it, it has the power to addict, dull, and even destroy the human spirit. They need to be taught not to use vulgar language and to never use the Lord's name in vain. Crude jokes overheard should never be repeated. Teach family members not to listen to music that celebrates the sensual. Talk to them plainly about sex and teaching the teaching of the gospel regarding chastity. Let this information come from parents in the home in an appropriate way. All family members need to know the rules and be fortified spiritually so they can keep them. And when mistakes are made, the wondrous atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ must be understood and accepted so that through complete and sometimes difficult process of repentance, forgiveness, and continued hope for the future can be obtained. We must never give up our individual and family quest for eternal life. Unfortunately, far too many parents in today's world have abdicated the responsibility to teach these values and other Church doctrines to their, family, to their families, believing that others will do it—the peer group, the school, Church leaders and teachers, or even the media. Every day our children are learning, filling their minds and hearts with experiences and perceptions that deeply influence personal value systems. Brothers and sisters, we need to instruct one another and instill deeper faith in our hearts to fortify ourselves with the courage to keep the commandments in a world of ever-increasing wickedness. We need to become so deeply converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ that the fire of the covenant will burn in our hearts like flame unquenchable. And with that kind of faith, we will do what is necessary to remain true and worthy. Second is communication. Nothing is more important to the relationship between family members than open, honest communication. This is particularly true for parents trying to teach gospel principles and standards to their children. The ability to counsel with our youth and, perhaps more importantly, to really listen to their concerns is the foundation upon which successful relationships are built. Often what we see in the eyes and what we feel in the heart will communicate far more than what we hear or say. A word to you children. Never be disrespectful to your parents. You must also learn to listen, especially to the counsel of your mom and dad and to the promptings of the Spirit. We need to watch for and capture the special teaching moments that constantly occur within our family relationships, and we need to resolve now 
to hold family home evening every Monday night. There are powerful moments of communication through regular family prayer and through family scripture study. The scriptures will help define family values and goals, and talking together about them assists family members to learn to become individually secure, spiritually strong, and self-reliant. This requires time, and so we need to counsel together about how much television, how many movies, videos, video games, time on the Internet, or out-of-the-home activities should be allowed. Third is intervention. It is the parents' duty to intervene when they see wrong choices being made. That doesn't mean that parents take from children the precious gift of agency, because agency is a God-given gift. Ultimately, the choice of what they will do, how they will behave, and what they will believe will always be theirs. But as parents, we need to make sure they understand appropriate behavior and the consequences to them if they pursue their wrongful course. Remember, there is no such thing as unlawful censorship in the home. Movies, magazines, television, videos, the Internet, and other media are there as guests and should only be welcomed when they are appropriate for family enjoyment. Make your home a haven of peace and righteousness. Don't allow evil influences to contaminate your own special spiritual environment. Be kind, thoughtful, gentle, and considerate in what you say and how you treat each other. Then family goals based on gospel standards will make it easier to make good decisions. The same principle applies to you bishops, teachers, and other leaders in the Church as you work to assist families. You don't have to stand idly by as those over whom you have stewardship make poor moral choices. When one of our youth stands at a moral crossroads in life, almost always there is someone, a parent, a leader, a teacher, who could make a difference by intervening with love and kindness. Fourth is example. Just as it is difficult for a weary sailor to find his way across uncharted seas without the aid of a compass, it is also impossible for children and youth to find their way through the seas of life without the guiding light of good example. We cannot expect them to avoid those things that are inappropriate if they see their parents compromising principles and failing to live the gospel. As parents, teachers, and leaders, it is our solemn duty to set a powerful personal example of righteous strength, courage, sacrifice, unselfish service, and self-control. These are the traits that will help our youth hold on to the iron rod of the gospel and remain on the straight and narrow path. I wish I could tell you that focusing on information, communication, intervention, and example would always result in perfect family with perfect children who never stray from the gospel standards. 
That is unfortunately not the case. But families that know, teach, and live gospel principles and standards are more likely to spare themselves the pain of serious mistakes. When long-established patterns of positive communication and faithful example prevail, it is much easier to counsel together about personal problems and to work through necessary changes that will bless every member. Listen to King Benjamin's significant counsel. I cannot tell you all the things whereby you may commit sin, for there are diverse ways and means, even so many, that I cannot number them. But this much I can tell you, that if you do not watch yourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds and observe the commandments of God and continue in the faith of which ye have heard concerning the coming of the Lord, even until the end of your lives ye must perish. And now, O man, remember and perish not. My brothers and sisters, may God bless every one of us that the fire of our covenant may burn in our hearts like flame unquenchable. May we be prepared spiritually to renew our sacred covenants each week as we partake of the sacrament, that we will honor the Lord and we will be anxious to do our part in these most exciting and great days to build up His Church by strengthening our families is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When the Relief Society marked its 50th birthday on March 17, 1892, sisters in branches, wards, and stakes throughout the Church, as well as here in the Salt Lake Tabernacle, met to join in a simultaneous offering of prayer. Joseph F. Smith, then counselor to President Wilford Woodruff, offered the prayer which included these words. Bless the members of the Relief Society throughout the earth. Wilt thou be with them by thy spirit to bless them, to cause their hearts to rejoice before thee. More than a century later, here we are, gathered tonight as sisters for the purpose of rejoicing. My heart is filled with joy and gratitude at the great blessing you and I have in being members of this marvelous Church and of knowing the plan of salvation laid out by our Heavenly Father. I rejoice in the wonderful blessings that come to us as we learn and grow through the programs of the Church. Specifically tonight, I rejoice in the programs of Relief Society. I rejoice in what they have done for us in the past and what they will help us accomplish in the future. President Joseph F. Smith recommended Relief Society for our benefit when he spoke of it as being divinely made, divinely authorized, divinely instituted, and divinely ordained of God. Elder Ezra Taft Benson reminded us the Church was created in large measure to help the family, and long after the Church has performed its mission, the family will still be functioning. I'd like to talk about building homes where each of us individually, whether married or single, young or old, can grow and reach our ultimate potential, where family members can learn all that they need to know to follow the plan of salvation, which is our Heavenly Father's plan 
for each of us to find our way back to Him and to our heavenly home when this probationary period of mortality is finished. I echo the fervor of President David O. McKay, who said, With all my heart, I believe the best place to prepare for eternal life is in the home. And yet the scriptures warn that there must be opposition in all things. Indeed, President Boyd K. Packer tells us the ultimate purpose of the adversary is to disrupt, disturb, and destroy the home and family. This past spring, two different bird families built nests in my yard. A small sparrow chose a rose tree on my patio for her nest. Time after time, she flew back and forth, carrying blades of grass and small twigs in her beak. Carefully, she manipulated her way through the rose thorns, depositing her building materials in the chosen spot. She worked without resting until that tiny nest was finished. I was amazed at how carefully the grasses were woven to make a strong and stable structure. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was almost moved to tears when I saw in the bottom of the nest four small pieces of cotton placed in just the right spot to make a soft bed for her little ones. The second bird, a robin, chose to build her nest in front of my house near the rain gutter, up high where ground predators could not reach it. Since she was larger, so was her nest. And in addition to being bigger, the outside of her nest was glued with mud, which kept the grasses and twigs together and held it in the crook of the rain gutter. Inside, single blades of grass were woven into a soft, cup-like shape that perfectly cradled the bird. When the nests were completed, both birds laid their eggs and began the daily vigil of protecting and nurturing. Hour after hour, Day after day, these birds sat on their eggs. After the eggs hatched, the mothers worked full-time to feed their hungry babies. One particularly hot day, I noticed the robin sitting on her nest panting with her beak open. Obviously, she was uncomfortable in the glare of the sun, and I wondered why she stayed. And then I realized she was not sitting deep in the nest as she had when she was keeping her babies warm. Instead, she was carefully stretched over the top of the nest, forming a protective shelter to keep her featherless babies from being sunburned. I began to read about birds and the great pains they take to build homes for their families. Did you know that barn swallows make more than 1,200 mud-carrying trips in order to construct their nests? And one single nest of a hooded oriole was found to contain 3,000 387 separate pieces of material. It seems to me that birds invest everything—their time, their energy, their means, their own comfort—to make a home and rear their young. It is not a priority that is given second place or avoided. It takes first place. Since watching the birds in my yard, I have wondered who taught these birds what to do? How did they know how to build a nest and shade their fledglings from the sun? Birds follow instincts to provide, protect, and nurture. These are God-given instincts, and pondering on them caused me, along with the psalmist, to exclaim, O Lord, how great are thy works! We are also blessed with God-given instincts. 
We instinctively want so much for those we love, and yet being human, we encounter many more problems than the birds I observed. In today's society, there are many who challenge the importance of the traditional home and family. Some think there are other uses of a woman's time and talents that are more important than the family. But prophets have been relentless in declaring that the role of homemaker is one of the most sacred and meaningful pursuits possible to man or woman. Sisters in all life circumstances have opportunities to build and nurture others within their sphere of influence. As you and I learn more about Heavenly Father's plan of salvation, we are assured that no matter the circumstances of our individual lives, creating a safe and nurturing environment for those we love is of the utmost importance. Elder Neal A. Maxwell said, The home is usually the place where most of our faith is established and increased. How sad, therefore, that some homes are merely a pit stop when they should be a prep school for the celestial kingdom. As we fight the negative influences of the world and struggle to build homes that are a prep school for the celestial kingdom, let us remember that our earthly activities have a spiritual base and a celestial conclusion. As a Relief Society General Presidency, we want to reaffirm our goals and commitment to the purpose of Relief Society, which is to help sisters and their families come to Christ. We want to make certain that Relief Society is a help and a blessing to every sister in the Church, regardless of her circumstances. We are eager for each sister to strengthen herself spiritually and to acquire skills that will be crucial in meeting the challenges that are ahead. Therefore, with the approval of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, we are pleased to make the following announcements. Effective January 1, 2000, the name of Homemaking Meeting will be changed. The new name will be Home, Family, and Personal Enrichment. The purpose of the new name is to clearly communicate what this important midweek meeting of Relief Society is designed to accomplish. The further purpose of the new name is to help each of us refocus our attention on strengthening ourselves and then, with that increased strength, build our family members, our friends, neighbors, and community so that each may be brought closer to our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. During the 15-minute lesson portion of this meeting, teachers will present a spiritual topic. During the 60- to 90-minute activity portion, we will learn practical skills based on the spiritual topic. These practical skills could be something like home maintenance and repairs, gardening, or quilting. We could also choose to participate in service activities that bless and strengthen others. This meeting should enrich and improve each of our lives. Within the gospel are the answers the world needs to solve the problems that are all around us. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the knowledge and the means to establish homes of strength, peace, love, and faith. We need not do it alone. The programs of the Church can help us. 
We also need the help our Father in heaven is eager to give us. In Psalms 127, verse 1, we are cautioned, Except the Lord built the house, they labor in vain that build it. Recently, my friend Richard came home from work to find a very small girl sitting on the curb in front of his house crying. He asked if he could help. Through her sobs, she explained that she was lost. He told her that this was his house and his wife was inside. He told her he knew she shouldn't go with strangers, but if she felt comfortable going inside, he and his wife would try to find her home. They went into his house, and his sweet wife, Linda, began to console the little girl. I'm sure you must be very frightened, she said. I was frightened, the girl responded, until I saw the picture of Jesus hanging on your wall. Then I knew I would be safe. Throughout the world, many of God's children are lost. We who know the truth can help them. We can show them a pattern of strong homes and righteous family members. We can help them if we have the Savior in our homes, not just his picture on the wall, but also his teachings, his spirit, and his love. Despite the instincts we have been blessed with, this kind of home doesn't happen automatically. We need spiritual strength and practical skills to build a home where the Spirit of the Lord is present. Home, family, and personal enrichment meeting is a place for us to share sisterhood, to gain knowledge, to learn skills, and to increase testimony. This meeting is also the place to rededicate ourselves to our homes and families and to the giving of service wherever it is needed. As Relief Society leaders and all of us as members, Catch the vision and the excitement of home, family, and personal enrichment meeting and act out of the resultant enthusiasm, we will grow in testimony and spiritual strength. We will come closer to our Savior and know how to build homes where He can dwell. Then, quoting President Thomas S. Monson, The Lord, even our building inspector, may say to us, as he said to Solomon, a builder of another day, I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to pit my name there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Relief Society is an organization of divine origin. Within it lies the power to strengthen sisters and their families and to create a worldwide family of sisters. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear sisters of the Relief Society, I humbly stand before you this day with gratitude in my heart that knows no bounds. I testify to you that in the last months, the Lord's Spirit has hovered over the organizations of this Church. We have felt His guiding influence as we have worked with many very capable counselors and our devoted priesthood advisors, board members, and our supportive staff earnestly praying for direction as we move this work forward. 
we have diligently researched and evaluated how to lift our sisters wherever you are serving in an effort to determine how each of us can catch the vision of the magnificent potential of the Relief Society organization. I pray that the Spirit of the Holy Ghost will bless you with a greater vision of who you are, why you are here, and the unique gifts you have to bring to the Relief Society organization. It is my hope that as you ponder the direction you will receive this night from the First Presidency and your General Relief Society Presidency, you will receive a witness that it is indeed direction that comes from the Lord. This is a monumental moment, one of great significance as we prepare for the future. In Zechariah 2, 10, and 11, we read, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for, lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. We gather together as sisters of a worldwide church with rejoicing in the blessings that the gospel brings. It is truly a day to lift up our hearts. First and foremost, we rejoice in our knowledge that our Heavenly Father loves each of us. We rejoice in our testimonies that Jesus Christ and his, of Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice. We rejoice in the restoration of the gospel and the mighty work accomplished by the prophet Joseph Smith. We rejoice that we live in a day when the living prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, boldly moves forward the work of the Lord. We rejoice in the number of temples being built, the breakthrough in computer science to research our ancestors, and the excitement for service. We rejoice in the number of missionaries being sent into all the lands of the earth to gather the honest in heart. We rejoice in our individual lives and the opportunity given to each of us to be part of God's great plan of happiness. We rejoice in the organization of the Relief Society, and we know that women throughout the world will be drawn to the Church as we perfect our lives and live essential truths to light the way for others to follow. In the words of Wordsworth, we recall, quote, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness. But trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home." Close quote. During the past two and a half years of our service in the Relief Society General Presidency, we are aware that people of the world are curious about Relief Society. In an effort to respond to the inquiries 
from outside the church and to remind ourselves of the grand blessings of womanhood, we, as a Relief Society General Presidency, present the following. We are beloved spirit daughters of God, and our lives have meaning, purpose, and direction. As a worldwide sisterhood, we are united in our devotion to Jesus Christ, our Savior and exemplar. We are women of faith, virtue, vision, and charity, who increase our testimonies of Jesus Christ through prayer and scripture study, seek spiritual strength by following the promptings of the Holy Ghost, dedicate ourselves to strengthening marriages, families, and homes, find nobility in motherhood and joy in womanhood, delight in service and good works, love life and learning, stand for truth and righteousness, sustain the priesthood as the authority of God on earth, rejoice in the blessings of the temple, understand our divine destiny, and strive for exaltation. We, as a Presidency, rejoice in this declaration, approved and endorsed by the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve, which clearly sets forth principles of attitude and action that will lead each of us back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. As we individually apply these teachings, we will, as fatherly high hoped, reach the tree of life. In 1 Nephi 8.12 we read, And as I partook of the fruit, it filled my soul with joy. Wherefore I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. We, like Father Lehi, have a hope that as we journey along a path of life, we will partake of the fruit found in this gospel of Jesus Christ in a personal way and experience joy that will fill our souls with greater faith, hope, and charity. Together, let's examine some of the qualities and how they can affect our lives. As a worldwide sisterhood, we are united in our devotion to Jesus Christ, our Savior and exemplar. We declare to the world that it is not by chance that we have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. It rings true. This great plan, when reflected upon, puts this life in perspective. We know we have and always will exist. We know we have been sent to earth to gain experience and prove ourselves. The decisions we make are vital if we are to gain eternal life and exaltation. We know that this estate is important, and this understanding gives meaning, purpose, and direction in our lives. Ultimately, all of us want to learn our lessons well and return home to our loving Heavenly Father. 
We accept the Savior as the only begotten Son of our Heavenly Father. We know that through Him we will be redeemed and resurrected. Therefore, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, and we preach of Christ. We have faith, virtue, vision, and charity. As we visit your part of the world, we see many Relief Society sisters who hold fast to the iron rod. We have faith when the storms of life come, and we choose to keep ourselves clean and pure when temptation arises. We see a well of charity spring out of each heart as a sister seeks the pure love of Christ. We dedicate ourselves to strengthening marriages, families, and homes, and find nobility in motherhood and joy in womanhood. We understand that the home is the basic unit created by God for our service and learning. Out of this understanding grows a commitment to make our time spent with family a top priority and to look inside to determine how to be a better companion. Out of these reflections flow actions that are kind and loving and forgiving toward our spouses. We see sisters who truly desire their children to partake of the fruit of the gospel by going on missions and marrying in the temple, so they spend their time holding meaningful family home evenings, family scripture study and prayer in regular personal temple attendance. The Declaration will be a continual reminder to focus on our most important responsibilities. But not all women give birth to those they mother. President Joseph F. Smith was left an orphan at the early age of 13. He was later sent on a mission to the Hawaiian Islands. On the island of Molokai, he contracted a severe fever and was seriously ill for three months. A wonderful Hawaiian sister took him in, took care of him, tended him as lovingly as though he were her own son. Many years later, President Smith visited the islands as president of the Church. Charles Nibley tenderly described the experience, quote, It was a memorable sight to see the deep-seated love and even tearful affection that these people had for him. In the midst of it all, I noticed a poor old blind woman tottering under the weight of about 90 years being let in. She had a few choice bananas in her hand. It was her all, her offering. She was calling, Iosipa, Iosipa. Instantly, when he saw her, he ran to her and clasped her in his arms and hugged her and kissed her, patting her on the head and saying, Mama, Mama, my dear old Mama. And with tears streaming down his cheeks, he turned to me and said, Charlie, she nursed me when I was a boy sick, and without anyone to care for me, she took me in and was a mother to me. Close quote. We can all extend our arms in love to others and give gifts of compassion and tenderness that can only flow from a woman's heart.
We delight in service and good works. Several weeks ago, a tornado touched down in Salt Lake City, leaving in its path devastation and destruction. The following morning, a Stake Relief Society president, whose home had severe damage, had a report prepared which provided information for her priesthood leaders for future visits and assessments. Literacy is another way to assist others and change their lives forever. One counselor over education caught that vision. She invited two friends to gather, and they attended classes learning how to teach English as a second language. They are now teaching English to a wonderful family of 13 from Kosovo. Literacy has been a blessing for both the teacher and the students. We stand for truth and righteousness. We speak out to stop the flowing tide of filth and corruption that is a plague in our society. Sisters who know right from wrong and stand firm on the Lord's side, making choices that set them apart from the rest of the world as they carefully monitor the family's use of television programs, dress modestly, and refrain from watching any films that glorify violence and immoral behavior. We sustain a priesthood, this priesthood, as the authority of God on the earth. We sisters in this great Church who recognize the blessings of the restored priesthood, we rejoice as we watch a baby being blessed. Each child is bab- that is baptized as we partake of the sacrament and are set apart for Church callings and watch our husbands give fathers blessings. We are grateful for priesthood blessings that light our way and give us direction and hope. We rejoice and support worthy priesthood holders. We rejoice in the blessings of the temple, understand our divine destiny, and strive for exaltation. We see sisters who rejoice in the blessings of the temple, sisters who seek to make and keep their covenants, doing work for their kindred dead, and in the process find their own loads lifted and their power to resist temptation fortified. Daughters of God, who understand their divine destiny, catch a vision of their potential and focus on overcoming weaknesses. We testify that each of us has a vital role, even a sacred mission, to perform as a daughter in Zion. It is a new day, the dawning of a new era. It is our time, and it is our destiny to rejoice as we fill the earth with greater kindness and gentleness greater love and compassion, greater sympathy and empathy than has ever been known before. It is time to give ourselves to the Master and allow Him to lead us into fruitful fields where we can enrich a world filled with darkness and misery. Each of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we serve, 
must arise and make the most of each opportunity that comes. We must follow the counsel given by the Lord and His servants and make our homes houses of prayer and havens of security and safety. We can and must deepen our faith by increasing our obedience and sacrifice. In this individual process, a miracle will take place. The Relief Society will begin to stretch and reach out to the millions in need. It will, be, it will continue to become an organization that brings relief and rejoicing. This will happen one sister at a time. We will unite in our righteousness and truly partake of the fruit of the tree of life together. The fruits of our labors can heal the world. And sisters, in the process, it can heal us too. It is my humble prayer that each of us will leave this meeting determined to devote our lives to Christ. I promise you that as you do so, you will have every reason to rejoice. For the Lord will dwell in the midst of thee. This I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, first may I thank you for being with us on this occasion. For this and the many other wonderful things which you do, you give of your time, your energy, your means to the accomplishment of the Lord's work. I am confident that the Lord loves you for your devotion, for your willingness to do all that you are asked to do. It is a wonderful and serious responsibility to speak to you. Speculation has been going about that President Hinckley is going to announce some new and glamorous program. I assure you that this is not so. My brethren of the Twelve, who are deeply concerned about our missionary work throughout the world, have asked that I share with you some feelings that I have on this most important matter. In terms of the eventual audience, this is probably the largest gathering ever convened in the cause of missionary work. The tabernacle is filled, the proceedings of this meeting will be seen by almost all of the nearly 59,000 full-time missionaries laboring throughout the world. Additionally, the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of Church officers who have an interest and responsibility in this matter are gathered with us, or the proceedings of this hour will be taken to them. I forewarn you, this will be a rather long talk. I'm an old man. I do not know how much longer I will live, and so I want to say what I have to say while I have the strength to say it. I do not know when I will give a talk this long again. I shall give two speeches interrupted by the singing of a hymn. Altogether, I'll take about 40 minutes. Having been warned, some of you will wish to get comfortable. Pleasant dreams.
I spoke the other day with one of the most enthusiastic converts I've ever met. We were in Chicago for a big meeting which brought together some 20,000 members of the church in the great United Center where the Chicago Bulls play basketball. Randy Chiostri, a new member of the church, drove us about while we were there. All during those long rides in the Chicago traffic, he was talking about missionary work, praising the church as the most wonderful institution in the world, talking of the gospel and the plan of salvation as the greatest thing that had ever come into his life. Randy's introduction to the church came when he dated Nancy. He took her to dinner. On the first date, she said she drank no liquor. She would not take wine. How curious, he thought. She said it was against her faith. Smoking was also against her faith. Her faith became the subject of their conversations. He married her on the one-year anniversary of that first date, but he could not accept her religion. It took him almost eight years to overcome his doubts. One pair of missionaries after another taught him. Finally, he was touched by the Spirit. He was baptized last March. He visited the Hill Cumorah. He visited Nauvoo. He said, I visited 17 temples. I visited them on the outside, but not on the inside. He went to every temple he could get to. He now looks forward to the day that he will visit them on the inside. That first inside visit in Chicago will be in April. He will receive his endowment, and then the next day he and Nancy will be sealed. After his baptism, Randy was immediately put to work. He was ordained to the Aaronic priesthood. After being a member for about nine months, he was ordained an elder in the Melchizedek priesthood. He loves the Church. He's consumed with his love of the gospel. It has become the major interest of his life. He cannot stop talking about it. Each night and morning he gets on his knees and thanks the Lord for the wondrous thing that has come into his life. I learned a few things from Randy as I listened to him. The first is the tremendous power of the example of a member of the Church. It was Nancy's firm but quiet stance on that first date concerning no liquor and no wine which caught his attention. The missionaries worked on him through the years, but she was the key that unlocked his heart to a love for the Lord and his mind to an understanding of the plan of salvation. The second thing I learned is that you never give up when when there is the slightest spark of interest. It took him nearly eight years to come into the Church. His mind was open, but there was a lurking fear overtaking so bold a step. He was setting aside the traditions of his forebears and stepping into something new and strange and difficult to understand. Thirdly, he was put to work immediately following his baptism. His bishop saw that he had something challenging to do. Was he qualified to handle the assignment? The bishop gave that question very little attention. 
He saw an eager new convert, and he gave him a responsibility on which to grow. The bishop saw that he had friends in the church. The first, of course, was his wife, Nancy. And there were a few more able people who could answer his questions and listen patiently when he did not understand. He was not left friendless to grope through the dark. He had those who were willing to take the time to talk with him. Does he know all there is to know about the church? No, of course not. He's constantly learning, and with that learning is a growing enthusiasm. He's excited about what he's found. He is eager to receive the higher temple's blessings of the temple. His testimony has become strong and secure within less than a year's time. I believe he is a 100% convert, and his enthusiasm is contagious. We need more of this kind, and we need many more to work with them. From the beginning of this work, missionary service has been a four-step process. One, finding the investigator. Two, teaching the investigator. Three, baptizing the worthy convert. Four, fellowshipping and strengthening the new member. Last year, there were approximately 300,000 convert baptisms throughout the Church. This is tremendously significant. This is the equivalent of 120 new stakes of 2,500 members each. Think of that. 120 new stakes in a single year. It is wonderful, but it is not enough. I am not being unrealistic when I say that with concerted effort, with recognition of the duty which falls upon each of us as members of the Church, and with sincere prayer to the Lord for help, we could double that number. The big initial task is first to find interested investigators. So many of us look upon missionary work as simply tracting. Everyone who is familiar with this work knows there's a better way. That way is through the members of the Church. Whenever there is a member who introduces an investigator, there is an immediate support system. The member bears testimony of the truth of the work. He is anxious for the happiness of his investigator friend. He becomes excited as that friend makes progress in learning the gospel. The full-time missionaries may do the actual teaching, but the member, wherever possible, will back up that teaching with the offering of his home to carry on this missionary service. He will bear sincere testimony of the divinity of the work. He will be there to answer questions when the missionaries are not around. He will be a friend to the convert who is making a big and often difficult change. The gospel is nothing to be ashamed of. It is something to be proud of. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, wrote Paul to Timothy. Opportunities for sharing the gospel are everywhere. Dr. William Gormley served as president of the stake in Corpus Christi, Texas. He bought his gasoline at a particular station. 
Each time he filled his tank, he would leave a piece of church literature with the station owner. It might have been a tract or a church magazine or the church news, but he never went there without leaving something. The man who ran the station was converted by the power of the Spirit as he read that literature. When last I checked, he was serving as a bishop. The process of bringing new people into the Church is not the responsibility alone of the missionaries. They succeed best when members become the source from which new investigators are found. I would like to suggest that every bishop in the Church give as a motto to his people, Let's all work to grow the ward. I'm not sure the grammar's correct, but the idea is right. <laughs> Let there be cultivated an awareness in every member's heart of his own potential for bringing others to a knowledge of the truth. Let him work at it. Let him pray with great earnestness about it. Let each member pray as did Alma of old. O Lord, wilt thou grant unto us that we may have success in bringing others again unto thee in Christ. Behold, O Lord, their souls are precious, and many of them are our brethren. Therefore give unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom, that we may bring these our brethren again unto thee. My heart reaches out to you missionaries. You simply cannot do it alone and do it well. You must have the help of others. That power to help lies within each of us. But you must do all you can. You must be anxiously engaged. When you are not working on referrals of members, you must be developing those referrals yourselves through tracting and related means. I spoke at the funeral of a dear friend the other day. Some years ago, he served as a mission president. He felt totally inadequate when he arrived in the field. He was sent to succeed a very good man, a man of great ability, an excellent leader, and a very able president. When this new man took over the mission and made his first tour of meetings with missionaries, he said to them, I never served a mission as a young man, and so I don't know what you're going through. But do your best, your very, very best. Say your prayers and work hard, and leave the harvest to the Lord. With that kind of spirit and that outreach of love, a whole new attitude spread through the mission. Members got behind the missionaries within a year the number of converts had doubled. And now this word from Moroni, both to the missionaries and to the converts, quote, See that ye are not baptized unworthily. See that ye partake not of the sacrament of Christ unworthily. But see that ye do all things in worthiness and do it in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And if ye do this and endure to the end, ye will in no wise be cast out. Speaking of worthiness in coming into the Church, President Joseph F. Smith once wrote, and I quote, People must be taught before they are fit candidates for baptism 
Now what shall they be taught? Why? Faith in God, in Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. Faith in the efficacy of prayer and in the ordinances and principles of the gospel which Jesus taught. Faith in the restoration of this gospel and all of its powers to the prophet Joseph Smith. Faith in the church which he was instrumental in establishing. Faith in the priesthood as authorized servants of the living God. Faith in the revelations received in modern times. Faith in the performance of the works required of a Latter-day Saint. Faith in the principle of tithing and in all other requirements, temporal and spiritual, mentioned in the law of God. And finally, faith to live lives of righteousness before the Lord. Now, my brethren and sisters, we can let the missionaries try to do it alone, or we can help them. If they do it alone, they will knock on doors day after day, and the harvest will be meager. Or as members, we can assist them in finding and teaching investigators. Whose responsibility is it? I begin with the stake presidents and their councils. A stake mission with a stake mission president is found in each stake. It is their responsibility, working under the general direction of the stake president, to work constantly at the task of finding and encouraging investigators. Those finders include every member of the Church. Let there develop in every stake an awareness of the opportunity to find those who will listen to the gospel message. In this process, we need not be offensive. We need not be arrogant. The most, track, most effective tract we will carry will be the goodness of our own lives and example. And as we engage in this service, our lives will improve, for we shall be alert to see that we do not do or say anything which might impede the progress of those we are trying to lead toward the truth. I request each stake and district president to accept full responsibility and accountability for the finding and friendship of investigators within your stake or district. I request each bishop and branch president to accept the same responsibility within your ward or branch. You, brethren, have a sacred obligation before the Lord for this effort. You set the example for, others, for what others may do under your inspired leadership. We have full confidence in your capacity and willingness to do it. There needs to be an infusion of enthusiasm at every level of the Church. Let this subject be dealt with occasionally in sacrament meeting. Let it be discussed by the priesthood and the Relief Society in their weekly meetings. Let the young men and the young women talk about and plan ways to help in the most, this most important undertaking. Let even the primary children think of ways to assist. Many a parent has come into the Church because of a child who was invited to primary. I have a granddaughter who has a little non-member friend. She takes her to church, the girl's mother, without any malice said to her the other day, You say grace just like the Mormons. 
ward and state council meetings should have on the agenda the status of investigators developed by the ward members and every convert who has recently come into the church. If this happens, then the missionaries will be busy, they'll be happy, they'll be productive. The Revelation says to them, ye shall go forth in the power of my spirit, preaching my gospel two by two in my name, lifting up your voices as with the sound of a trump, declaring my word like unto angels of God. And ye shall go forth, baptizing with water, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord further said, And any man that shall go and preach this gospel of the kingdom, and fail not to continue faithful in all things, shall not be weary in mind, neither body, limb, nor joint, and a hair of his head shall not fall to the ground unnoticed, and they shall not go hungry, neither athirst. He continues, Whoever receiveth you, there I will be also. For I will go before your face, I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Missionaries may appropriately ask the members for referrals. We know that missionaries who ask for referrals are far more likely to receive them. The number of member referrals has declined in many areas because the matter does not receive attention. For instance, in the United States and Canada, 42% of investigators came from member referrals in 1987. By 1997, that number had dropped to 20%. A similar decline is found across the world. Now, brothers and sisters, this downward trend must be reversed. We need again to give this important matter its proper priority. The Lord will bless those who assist in this all-important work. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto the people and bring, save it be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And now if your joy will be great with one soul, that you brought unto me in the kingdom of my Father, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. The prophet Joseph Smith declared, after all that's been said, the greatest and most important duty is to preach the gospel. And again, let the saints remember that great things depend on their individual exertion and that they are called to be co-workers with us and the Holy Spirit in accomplishing the great work of the last days. Every one of the presidents of the Church following Joseph Smith has spoken on this important matter. Great is our work, tremendous is our responsibility in helping to find those to teach. The Lord has laid upon us a mandate to teach the gospel to every creature. This will take the very best efforts of every missionary, full time and stake. It will take the very best efforts of every bishop, of every bishop's counselor, of every member of the ward council. 
It will take the very best interests of every state president and his council, and particularly the member missionary coordinating councils. God bless you, my beloved brethren and sisters, in meeting the tremendous challenge that is ours. We cannot evade it. We cannot escape it. We must face up to it. The opportunities are tremendous. We are equal to it. And the Lord will bless us as we try. Having found and baptized a new convert, we have the challenge of fellowshipping him and strengthening his testimony of the truth of this work. We cannot have him walking in the front door and out the back. Joining the Church is a very serious thing. Each convert takes upon himself or herself the name of Christ with an implied promise to keep his commandments. But coming into the Church can be a perilous experience unless there are warm and strong hands to greet the convert, unless there is an outreach of love and concern, he will begin to wonder about the step he's taken. Unless there are friendly hands and welcome hearts to greet him and lead him along the way, he may drop by the side. There is absolutely no point in doing missionary work unless we hold on to the fruits of that effort. The two must be inseparable. These converts are precious. Every convert is a son or daughter of God. Every convert is a great and serious responsibility. It is an absolute imperative that we look after those who have become a part of us. To paraphrase the Savior, what shall it profit a missionary if he baptize the whole world? unless those baptized remain in the Church. I received the other day a very interesting letter. It was written by a woman who joined the Church a year ago. She writes, My journey into the Church was unique and quite challenging. This past year has been the hardest year that I have ever lived in my life. It has also been the most rewarding. As a new member, I continue to be challenged every day. She goes on to say that when she joined the Church, she did not feel support from the leadership in her ward. Her bishop seemed indifferent to her as a new member. Rebuffed as she felt, she turned back to her mission president who opened opportunities for her. She states that, quote, Church members don't know what it's like to be a new member of the Church. Therefore, it's almost impossible for them to know how to support us. I challenge you, my brothers and sisters, that if you do not know what it is like, you try to imagine what it is like. It can be terribly lonely. It can be disappointing. It can be frightening. We of this Church are far more different from the world than we are prone to think we are. This woman goes on, quote, When we as investigators become members of the Church, we are surprised to discover that we have entered into a completely foreign world, a world that has its own traditions, culture, and language. We discover that there is no one person 
or no one place of reference that we can turn to for guidance in our trip into this new world. At first, the trip is exciting, our mistakes even amusing. Then it becomes frustrating, and eventually, the frustration turns into anger. And it's at these stages of frustration and anger that we leave. We go back to the world from which we came, where we knew who we were, where we contributed, and where we could speak the language. Close quote. I've said before, and I repeat it, that every new convert needs three things. One, a friend in the church to whom he can constantly turn, who will walk beside him, who will answer his questions, who will understand his problems. Two, an assignment. Activity is the genius of this church. It is the process by which we grow. Faith and love for the Lord are like the muscle of my right arm. If I use them, they grow stronger. If I put them in a sling, they become weaker. Every convert deserves a responsibility. The bishop may feel that he's not qualified for responsibility. Take a chance on him. Think of the risk the Lord took when he called you. Of course, the new convert will not know everything. He likely will make some mistakes. So what? We all make mistakes. The important thing is the growth that will come of activity. As a part of this process of giving responsibility, it is proper and very important that the new convert, if he be a man, is ordained to the Aaronic priesthood. Then before too many months, he may be ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood. He will have the fellowship of the elders' quorum. He will become one of a vast body of priesthood throughout the world, men of integrity and faith who love the Lord and seek to move His work forward. He will belong to something important. Thirdly, every convert must be nourished by the good word of God. It is imperative that he or she become affiliated with the priesthood quorum or the Relief Society, the young women, the young men, the Sunday school, or the primary. He or she must be encouraged to come to sacrament meeting, to partake of the sacrament, to renew the covenants made at the time of baptism. Not long ago, I listened to a man and woman who spoke in my home ward. This man had served in many capacities in the Church, including that of bishop. Their most recent assignment was to fellowship a single mother and her children. He stated that it was the most joyful of all his Church experiences. This young woman was full of questions. She was filled with fear and anxiety. She did not wish to make a mistake to say anything that was out of line that might embarrass her or cause others to laugh. Patiently, this man and his wife brought the family to church, sat with them, put a shield around them, as it were, against anything that might happen to embarrass them. They spent one evening a week with them at their home, teaching them further concerning the gospel and answering their many questions. They led that little family along as a shepherd leads his sheep.
Eventually, circumstances dictated that they move to another city. But, he stated, we still correspond with that woman. We feel a great appreciation for her. She is now firmly grounded in the Church, and we have no fear concerning her. What a joy it has been to work with her. I am convinced that we will lose but very, very few of those who come into the Church if we take better care of them. They may not be thoroughly converted. How can they be, having had only six lessons? They may not meet all of the desirable qualifications, but they have been awakened to a new sense of values and opportunities. They've been taught that they are sons and daughters of God. They've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They have been confirmed members of the Church and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. I was recently in Canada, where I visited, among other cities, the city of Regina. There we were hosted by President D. Lawrence Penner, president of the Saskatoon, Saskatchewan State. He's a wonderful man, an excellent executive. When he was 20 years of age, he was baptized. It was a huge step for him. He'd been referred to the missionaries by members of the Church. They immediately looked him up. They talked to him. They taught him. They baptized him. They encouraged him, as did his local Church officers. He was ordained to the priesthood. He was given things to do. A year later, he was called on a mission and served in Japan. He returned the stronger for that experience. With the encouragement of many people who have helped him along the way, he stands today as the presiding high priest of this great stake of Zion. He is the husband and father of a good family, all of whom are active. He is an example of the kind of man who should be coming into the Church as a convert and remaining to become a leader. Now, you missionaries, you are a part of this responsibility of binding your converts to the Church. You may not be able to continue to visit them, but you can write them occasionally and give them encouragement. I hope that every one of you will make a record in your scriptures of every man, woman, and child whom you baptize together with their home addresses. Your penmanship may be terrible, but an occasional note from you will give reassurance and comfort and a rekindling of joy if they can read it. When, when you go home, do not forget them. At all times, live worthy of their trust. Write to them occasionally, assuring them of your love. To the missionaries, I repeat, it will do no good for you to baptize someone and have that individual fall away from the Church shortly thereafter. What have you accomplished? You may have labored long and hard. You may have fasted and prayed as you taught a particular individual the gospel. But if he does not remain active in the Church, all of your labor has been in vain. The whole process counts for nothing. Any investigator worthy of baptism becomes a convert worthy of saving. Elder Bruce Porter of the Seventy recounts an experience, quote, 
As a missionary in Germany nearly 25 years ago, I arrived in the city of Wuppertal as a new zone leader. Shortly after the missionaries who preceded me had had phenomenal success in baptizing several families and individuals. Their baptisms represented a substantial addition to that branch, which had nearly 100 members. We decided as missionaries to concentrate a great deal of effort on integrating and fellowshipping these new members so that they would remain active members of the branch for the rest of their lives. We taught them all of the new member lessons as well as additional lessons of our own making. We enrolled them in a year-long Gospel Essentials class taught by the missionaries. We worked with the branch leadership to ensure that they received callings and were integrated into the branch through socials and fellowshipping by members. We arranged for them to meet one another and help teach other investigators so that they would form bonds among themselves that would help them as a group remain active in the future. In short, we spent more than six months after their baptism doing what we could to ensure that their testimonies were strong and that they were integrated into the Church. Today, 25 years later, almost all of those families and individuals are still active and faithful. Many of their children have served missions and have been married in the temple. We now have a second and even a third generation of activity in the Church. The one couple who did go inactive had a daughter who remained active and has since been married in the temple. Although this is only one case, my experience then persuaded me the time spent by missionaries working with members to integrate them into the Church will pay off richly in the long term." End of quote. That is a powerful testimony of what can be done. However, missionaries do not need to neglect proselyting to assist in fellowshipping the members. The two efforts can go hand in hand. You have the saints to help, all of them. You have bishops and their ward councils. You have stake presidents and their stake counselors. Most particularly, you have the Member Missionary Coordinating Council, which meets periodically to consider missionary problems in the stake, and most particularly to keep track of and give an accounting of every new member who has come into the Church. Your own full-time mission president will frequently attend this meeting. Under the direction of this Council, another six lessons will be taught to more firmly ground new members in their faith. Now to you bishops who hold your ward council meetings. A discussion of the status of converts in that meeting will be the most important business you will conduct. It at least may be so. You are not bound by rigid rules. You have unlimited flexibility. You are entitled to answers to your prayers, to inspiration and revelation from the Lord in dealing with this matter. I am appalled when I hear that a bishop is indifferent toward those who come into the Church. At that time, they may not be very attractive people, but if they are treated right, the gospel will refine them. Their very dress, their demeanor, their deportment will improve. All of us have seen miracles occur. How great is our opportunity! 
how tremendous our challenge. My beloved brethren and sisters, it is our responsibility, the responsibility of each of us, of the State Presidency, of the High Council, of the Bishopric, of the Sunday School Presidency, of the Primary Presidency, of the Young Men Presidency, of the Young Women Presidency, of the Relief Society Presidency, and of the Priesthood Quorum Officers to see that everyone who is baptized is encouraged and made to feel the wondrous warmth of this gospel of our Lord. I am pleased to report that we're making progress, but there is so very much more that remains to be done. How glorious is this work! It is filled with miracles. We could talk about them all evening as we have witnessed them. Brothers and sisters, all of you out in the wards and stakes and in the districts and branches, I invite you to become a vast army with enthusiasm for this work and a great overarching desire to assist the missionaries in the tremendous responsibility they have to carry the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The field is white and ready to harvest. The Lord has repeatedly declared this. Shall we not take him at his word? Before the Church was organized, there was missionary work. It has continued ever since, notwithstanding the difficulties of many of the seasons through which our people have passed. Let us, everyone, resolve in our, within ourselves to arise to a new opportunity, a new sense of responsibility, a new shouldering of obligation to assist our Father in heaven in his glorious work of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of his sons and daughters throughout the earth. This is God's holy work. This is his Church and kingdom. The vision that occurred in the sacred grove was just as Joseph said it was. We are building a new temple overlooking this hallowed ground to further testify to the reality of this most sacred event. As I recently stood in the snow to determine the spot where this new temple will stand, there came into my heart a new understanding of the importance of that that happened in the sacred grove. The Book of Mormon is true. It testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. His priesthood has been restored and among us. The keys of that priesthood, which have come from heavenly beings, are exercised for our eternal blessing. Such is our testimony, yours and mine, a testimony which we must share with others. I leave this testimony and my blessing and my love with each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brethren and sisters, these have been two glorious days. The inspiration and power of the Holy Ghost have rested upon us. We rejoice together. As we conclude this conference, we have every reason to thank the Lord for his blessings. The music has been wonderful. We've been lifted and edified by the choirs and choruses which have sung for us. The prayers have drawn us nearer to the Lord, and those who have spoken to us
have been done so by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now the curtains are gradually closing on this notable and exceptional century. In one respect, it has been a shameful period in the history of the world. It has been the worst of all centuries, with more of war, more of man's inhumanity to man, more of conflict and trouble than any other century in the history of the world. It has been the bloodiest of all seasons. It has been a time when the adversary of truth has brought his evil influence of destruction and misery and pain to millions upon millions as witness what is going on in Yugoslavia. The father of us all must weep as he looks down upon his quarrelsome children. But in a larger sense, this has been the best of all centuries. In the long history of the earth, there has been nothing like it. The life expectancy of man has been extended by more than 25 years. Think of it. It is a miracle. The fruits of science have been manifest everywhere. By and large, we live longer, we live better. This is an age of greater understanding and knowledge. We live in a world of great diversity. As we learn more of one another, our appreciation grows. This has been an age of enlightenment. The miracles of modern medicine, of travel, of communication are almost beyond belief. All of this has opened new opportunities for us which we must grasp and use for the advancement of the Lord's work. And above all of these marvelous gifts is the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of the wonderful authority and blessings that have come therewith. This is verily the dispensation of the fullness of times bringing with it that which will never again be taken from the earth. I believe that Peter was speaking of us when he said, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, brethren and sisters, let us return to our homes with resolution in our hearts to do a little better than we've done in the past. We can all be a little kinder, a little more generous, a little more thoughtful of one another. We can be a little more tolerant and friendly not to those not of our faith, going out of our way to show our respect for them. We cannot afford to be arrogant or self-righteous. It is our obligation to reach out in helpfulness, not only to our own, but to all others as well. Their interest in and respect for this Church will increase as we do so. I am deeply grateful that as a Church we are extending humanitarian aid when there is sore distress. We have done a great deal and have blessed the lives of many people who are not of our faith but who also are children of our Father. We will continue to do so for as long as we have the means. 
To all who have contributed to this effort, we express our thanks. Let us continually work to strengthen our families. Let husbands and wives cultivate a spirit of absolute loyalty one to another. Let us not take another for growing another grand for granted, but let us constantly work to nurture a spirit of love and respect for each other. We must guard against fault-finding, anger, and disrespect one for another. Parents, safeguard your families. Bring up your children in light and truth as the Lord has commanded. Shower them with love, but do not spoil them. Share your testimony with them. Read the scriptures together. Guide and protect them. You have no greater blessing and no greater responsibility than those whom the Lord has placed in your care. Pray together. There is no substitute for family prayer when all kneel together before the Lord. Let us be a people of honesty and integrity, doing the right thing at all times and in all circumstances. Great are our blessings. Tremendous is our responsibility. Let us get on our knees and plead with the Lord for direction. Then let us stand on our feet, square up our shoulders, and march forward without fear to enlarge among people everywhere the righteousness of the Lord. In closing now, I feel impressed to announce but among all of the temples we are constructing, we plan <coughs> to rebuild the Nauvoo Temple. <coughs> a member of the Church and his family have provided a very substantial contribution to make this possible. We are grateful to them. It will be a while before it happens, but the architects have begun their work. This temple will not be busy much of the time. It will be somewhat isolated. But during the summer months, we anticipate it will be very busy. And the new building will stand as a memorial to those who built the first such structure there on the banks of the Mississippi. I repeat what I've said before. I love you. I leave my blessing and my testimony of this great and wonderful Latter-day work. God be with you till we meet six months from now. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.